Thank you, Tony. As y'all have a seat, uh, let me just welcome you to Harvest Church this morning. Uh, my name is Ken and Vaughn. I've got the privilege of being one of the pastors and elders and, and the privilege of preaching the Word this morning. So excited to do that. Um, and uh, in way of a small illustration, I'm not going to do anything right now, but I'm just thinking, I don't know if y'all can see this down here, so I'm just going to put this right here. This could r- result in a disaster. All right, be prepared. No idea. All right, we'll see. All right. Um, so we're in a series on 2 Timothy, which we have a, a new slide that Hunter has created with the word entrusted. Uh, not in our four verses today, but you will see that word come up regularly. I think it's in three of the next five messages. There's the idea of the gospel that has been entrusted to Paul that he is going to entrust into Timothy, who's going to entrust into others, who will entrust into others also. And you're going to literally see this movement of the gospel that's been entrusted to the people of God relationally in, uh, in intimate relationships where they pour themselves into another for the sake of Christ. So this great picture, as Tony just prayed, of discipleship and the gospel moving forth through the discipleship uh, throughout the first century in the early church and still today uh, to the ends of the earth. And so this is the mechanism by which God has chosen to grow his church, making disciples. And so I hope that this study in 2 Timothy would really give us a picture of what we have been entrusted with and would inspire us to entrust that to others. I, uh, I know that Damon has read this passage this morning, but I think that uh, repetition is a good thing. So if you guys would open back up to 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, let's look one more time at these words uh, we open our service with. Let's look at them again. Would you all mind standing to your feet for the reading of God's Word? 2 Timothy 1, 3 through 7 is where we'll be today. So this is the words of Paul to Timothy, but ultimately these are the very words of God. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. It's the word of God for the people of God. The people of God said, praise be to God. Let me have a seat. Father, just ask that you would take our time this morning and uh, bless it uh, for your glory, that you be glorified through our singing, through the preaching of your word, that you be pleased with the offering uh, that we lay before you now, even just the offering of our minds uh, prepared for a message and the offering of the praise of our lips in song uh, and our gifts in giving. Uh, Lord, we love you. We thank you for the good news of the gospel, that you have loved even us and demonstrated that love for us in Christ on the cross. God, I pray that as I speak, that ultimately uh, y- your voice would be the one that is heard in the minds and hearts of those here, that, uh, that you would speak through me, that I might just decrease on this very stage because you must increase. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you the question, uh, if you were in some remote place, like a prison cell, or um, some other remote place where you've got no email access, no cell phone, uh, uh, no ability to contact anyone to go grab a bite to eat and say what you might have on your heart, nothing. You just, you don't have any means of communication except you got pen and paper and a faithful courier. Uh, and in this context that I've painted for you, you know you're about to die. You don't know exactly when, maybe days, weeks, but you know that any day literally could be your last. No way to communicate other than pen, paper, 
and a messenger. Let, let me just ask you the question, uh, who would you write to if this were your situation? Who would you write to and what would you say? I'd love to know what's going through your minds right now. Who would you write to and what would you say? Really, this is the backdrop of 2 Timothy. This is Paul's circumstance. Um, he is in a very remote place. He has no means of communication at this point in his life other than ink and paper and a courier. And, um, and he chooses to write a letter to an individual named Timothy. We're going to talk more about that in a moment. Uh, to set the stage a little more, it's 66 A.D., uh, notice or note that six years earlier, Paul had first been arrested in Jerusalem, sent to Rome. He had had some uh, court cases. He had been accused of the Jews of serving a king, preaching a king other than Caesar. He was in the, uh, during through those uh, trials. He was put on house arrest, which is kind of like prison light. Like he was he was forced to be uh, in a house that he paid for, and he had to stay there. Couldn't leave the premises, but he could have guests. He could eat generally what he wanted to eat. He wasn't being tortured or beaten or or suffering beyond the fact that he was limited in his uh, where he could go. So for two years. He was just kind of stuck there, uh, being watched, couldn't leave, but could have fellowship, could preach, could teach, and was. And during those times, he even wrote uh, letters that are part of our New Testament. He wrote um, Philippians and Colossians and Ephesians and Philemon. And, um, and then something happened. Uh, he was released, as he seemed like he suspected. In Philippians and Colossians, he said, I hope to come and see you soon. So he had the idea that this wasn't long term. In 62 AD, he was released. Uh, a couple more years, he continued his gospel ministry. And then in 64, something happened. The emperor at the time was a man named Nero who, if you know anything about uh, world dictators in, um, in world history, it, Nero is cons- largely considered maybe the most vile and the most evil and the most immoral and the most heartless uh, man ever to live. So not, not a great tagline, but this is Nero. Um, bloodthirsty, greedy, narcissist. I mean, this is Nero. And uh, it was during his reign, and he did something. In 64 AD, he lit fire to his own capital city of his own world empire. He's, some just thought he's purely crazy. Some thought he was mad at his senators about something they were doing. Others uh, thought it was for the very reason that he would blame a particular sect for, for this, that he did it just to get the public mad at them. And what, what happened was he lit fire and he hired mobsters to make sure no one could extinguish the flames. For six days, the fire that he began just leveled Rome. It's crazy. And um, as it did... When the flames finally died out, six days later, 10 of the 14 Roman uh, districts were completely ruined. Rich and poor alike had become homeless. And Nero pointed to the Christians whom he particularly hated. And he said, they did it. And uh, this uh, incited an uproar against the Christians, which was maybe the, maybe the sole reason or just part of what Nero enjoyed about what he had done. And so he began to round up Christians with the support of the public and throw them into the arena for entertainment to be eaten by animals. He would crucify uh, groups of them uh, in mass at a moment's notice. And um, he even used them as human torches to light his own personal gardens and the roads of Rome as he rebuilt his empire. This is Nero, twisted, distorted, evil. And, uh, and it was during this time that he had Paul rearrested. And it was during this time, it was no house arrest. He was thrown into this dank, dark pit, underground dungeon, very little light, if any, very little food, if any, in starving conditions with no light, no sanitation, sickness and disease. And every day they were knocking on the doors of the prisoners around him, pulling them out and executing them. Paul knew any day might be his last. And in the words of 2 Timothy, the further we go, we'll see. He didn't expect to live through this. He knew this was it. 
And in those conditions, knowing his days were numbered, this letter, one reason I love it, it gives us a window into the soul of Paul. Like, what was he thinking about in that dungeon waiting to die out of faithful service to the Lord? What would you or I be thinking about? Self-pity? Um, resentment towards God? Frustration? Sadness? Loneliness? What would you and I, I'm just, I'm just, I guess I'm speaking for myself. That's what will be going through me. What, what, would you, what would you be thinking in these moments? I love this letter because we get to see who he chooses to write to, a young man named Timothy, and what is on his heart. By the way, that what was critical that Jamie said last week, in case you missed it about his relationship with Timothy, he met him in Lystra, which is now modern Turkey, at the end of his first missionary journey. He met him in the sense that he was in Lystra preaching the gospel. The Jews got angry, stoned him, dragged him out of the city, and left him for dead. Paul, when he was awakened by his disciples, he was not dead, and he went immediately back into the city to keep preaching. What? And so he goes back in, and he's preaching. And imagine just being an innocent bystander like young Timothy who sees this man. You either think crazy or convicted. And then when that missionary journey ends, he goes to Jerusalem for a council. And then when the second missionary journey begins, he starts by going right back to Lystra to continue his ministry there. Incredible. That's Acts 14 and Acts 16. And when he gets to Lystra the second time, he's introduced to this young believer who very likely was a, a fruit of Paul's first missionary journey and the gospel going forth. Young believer, mother and grandmother are believers. And Paul, however the interaction goes, he meets this young man and he invites Timothy to join him. Timothy, we know, is not only young, he is uh, timid in his spirit, probably just very introverted. Uh, the general public scares him. Speak, public speaking was probably his greatest fear as it is most Americans. I just recently read. Most Americans fear public speaking more than dying. Anyway, all right, so Timothy, just like most of us, scared, and he was sickly on top of that, just had stomach issues and all kind of issues, and so this kind of young, and Paul decides to choose this man to go with him, and he finishes that missionary journey. One more, here's the idea, 16 years, Timothy is at his side, 16 years, until 60 AD when Paul goes to his house arrest. Now, you imagine a traveling companion for 16 years. Sure, at first they were acquaintances. They became friends. He was a protege. He was a business partner in the sense of partnering for the gospel. But over 16 years, he became far more than all those things. How did Paul begin the letter last week? Timothy, my beloved child. He had become a son, a spiritual son. So Paul, in his dying days, ink, parchment, a courier, is thinking about and recalling just God's faithfulness through this ministry to young Timothy, and he decides, I'm going to write my last letter to my spiritual son in the faith. And he begins to ink some words, and I just want you to kind of remember this visual as we go through this book. He's going to begin to pour into Timothy's life. He's already poured love and time, and now he's going to begin to pour more and more truth into his life as we go forward. Now, what I want you to say, see is the way Paul begins. Now, I'm, I'm, just let me tell you, I'm, there's gonna be some, I hope, some really relevant, helpful application at the end, but there's also a couple, Paul kind of front loads the application. I couldn't figure out how to work these in the proper spot. I'm just gonna give them to him right out of the gate. Look how Paul starts his letter. He says, I thank God whom I serve. I thank God whom I serve. And so just stop right there. I thank God whom I serve. Are you kidding me? That's how you start the letter? Again, don't forget cold, dark. I mean, guys, it's just so hard for us to, to not to really put ourselves there. He's got no food, no sanitation, barely enough light to write the letter, and he starts in Thanksgiving. 
I think it's unbelievable. I had a hard time moving past this. I knew that it's not the main point of our first four verses, but in my, I, I did just, I got, it's like I got, uh, God just stiff-armed me this week. Just stop right there. And I thought about how many of my circumstances are not what I desire. In many cases, they are. God's been abundantly uh, kind to me in every way imaginable. But I still have difficult times and difficult things and difficult prognoses and just like life's hard. And there's circumstances which if I were God and I were the author, I'd probably uh, orchestrate differently about my life that I have to live with even though I don't understand. Same as you. There's relational difficulty, um, there's stress and anxiety, there's job stuff and family stuff and medical stuff, and there's just circumstances where I'd prefer things to be different. Now, on my bad days, even though my theology ought not to allow this, on my bad days, I can resent God. On my bad days, I can have the idea, and I would never say it out loud, but God, how could you? Now, I understand that theologically, that's all wrong. Because all I deserve in my rebelliousness to God is, is the devastation of sin leading to eternal death. That's what I deserve. Okay? And God in his grace has chosen to give me mercy and grace and joy and hope abounding for eternity. So I understand. I get it theologically. I understand. But I still in my spirit have moments of resentment. Now more often than that, I just have moments where I, I probably think, well, this is really unfortunate. This is going to be a grind. This is sad. This is hard. I wish it were otherwise. Rarely do I take that which in my life is not what I would choose and say, thank you, Lord, for you in your wisdom and sovereignty, knowing precisely what would bring the most glory to you, has given me these difficult circumstances that my faithfulness here may abound in the faithfulness of others in knowing and serving you as their Lord and God. That's varsity. Now, I'll tell you, there are very few days that I play on that team. But Paul, in a dark dungeon, facing execution, by the way, I thank my God whom I serve. It's your service to your God that has brought you to the executioner's block. And he says, thank you, Lord. Now, can I just stop and say, what is that communicating? What message is being communicated to spiritual son Timothy? You know what I think it is? God is good. All the time. All the time, Timothy. God is good. He's not merely good at the weddings. He's good in the funerals. He is not merely good when you get the promotion. Good when you lose a job. Not merely good. Now, this one's tough. When you have the gift of of seeing life brought forth in a child into your home. He is good. You know, he's also good when we lose a child. He's good all the time in his sovereign pleasure and by his sovereign mercy. There are millions of things we won't understand, but we believe his goodness because he has promised his grace to be sufficient for our needs. And anyone who's ever been in any trying circumstance, including Paul in the prison in Rome, knows it's true experientially. His grace sustains us. His power is made perfect in our weakness. His mercy is everlasting. His love endures forever. That one day, not on this side of glory, but one day you'll stand before him and he will joy in wiping the tears from our eyes. And that day, the effects of sin and death will be no longer. He'll have righted everything that we have wronged, and we will joy in his presence for all of eternity. And until that day, what is he doing? Working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. 
Paul's life. He, he doesn't preach that right here, but he does when he says, I thank God whom I'm serving. And I read that and I go, what? So for me, that, that was enough application this week. I just started thinking about all the ways my spirit complains over my circumstances. And it wasn't just, hey, quit whining, Kenan. It was thanking God for the stewardship of suffering for the sake of his glory. That little bit of prosperity gospel that wants to be alive in me, that is horribly antithetical to the true gospel, would say, why isn't God merely blessing me with, with you know, the things I want to be blessed with? And the truth is, he has. He has blessed me with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. That he has literally shed the blood of his only son on the cross for my salvation, not because I earned it in the midst of my wickedness. He has blessed me. And Paul says, in light of the blessing of the gospel, my life is at your bidding and I will be thankful in all circumstances. Okay, I thank my God, Timothy, whom I serve. Watch this. As did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. Um, sorry, that one messed me up as well. I just started thinking, if, if I were at the very end, if, if this were my week to go in to meet the Lord, and it could be for all I know, but if, it, if, it, if I knew that it were like Paul did, would I be able to say, I, I've lived in such a way that here I am going to meet the Lord and I've got a clear conscience. I don't know. I don't think so. Um, again, God's mercy is new every morning. Thankful for that. But I just started thinking about my life. Right now, my life today, I started thinking, you know, I'm trying to live for the Lord. And I think there's a lot of my life I have open-handed. God, you do with it what you want. But there's still certain things I hold tightly to. And so my life, if I could put it in kind of a word picture, is like 92% the Lord's, as long as I can hold to these things that are maybe my anchors to security or identity or comfort or whatever it is, idolatry. It's like, God, you can have most of me. These things I still derive some of, some of my comfort from, some of my security. And you know, if I have, if I have a regret if I were to go this week and I were to have a regret, if I were to have anything staining my conscience, keep me from being clear, I would tell you right now, it would be that I'm not fully. Like, God, just do whatever you want. Just have your way. In other words, if God wants to send me to a dank prison in Rome that I might be executed for the gospel, I tell you right now, that 8% would, would kind of raise its head. I want to be wholly devoted. And, and, and that's just, that's from a purpose level. There's also a personal level. There's this, is there any uncovered sin in my life or unconfessed sin in my life or sin in my life that I know of that I like to kind of kick dirt on and justify and just ignore because I'm mostly living for the Lord? Listen, the things that stain your conscience, and, and if that's true of you, you probably know about that right now. To be able to confess, live repentant lives and lives open-handed to the Lord's bidding. That's how we have a clear conscience before the Lord. Paul says, I thank my God, even as I face my death, and I thank him with a clear conscience. In other words, Paul has not fallen into the allure of the world and all the off-ramps that said, hey, Paul, you've done enough for God. How about a little bit for you? 
How about retirement? How about take it easy? How about let the young bucks carry the gospel here? How about not go be executed in Rome? Just like any of the alluring off-ramps that would say, why don't you be a little bit about your kingdom and not so fully about God's? Paul says, I got a clear conscience. My life has been lived surrendered. By the way, that's the only way that you and I will have a clear conscience before the Lord. If we are joyfully and fully his. Now, watch what he says. As I remember you, Timothy, constantly in my prayers, night and day. So he's he's thinking about him continually, constantly. As I remember your tears. Now, we don't know the occasion specifically, uh, but it would be natural to assume that was the last time they saw each other. Whether it was before Paul's house arrest six years ago or before his immediate impending executioner's imprisonment uh, that was two years ago. We, we don't know. But somehow, at some point, there was the, there was the moment where they were, um, uh, they had to, Paul was departed uh, in, in way of uh, being led away by guard to his imprisonment, and he recalls that Timothy was crying. It's not so important what the incident was, but it is important to understand what those tears signify. Every year I try to go on one international trip just to keep my own flame uh, hot for the Lord and to make sure, just to try to have on my heart what God has on his and the nations. And every time I go, one of the hardest things is to just pull away from my family, in this season especially, for the you know, eight or 10 or 14 days or whatever it is. And this last February, I had the chance to go to India with Pastor Nayak and Sujatha and uh, what a treat it is to be with them and see how God's moving in Southern India. And I had a chance to do that. And the night before, went out, tried to make a memory with our family and had a good time. And the next morning, my flight left around noon. And so I had, a, uh, had just a couple hours and it was a crisp February morning, sun was shining. And so uh, we just grabbed our gloves and we went out to the front yard and just tossed, which is one of God's greatest gifts to mankind. And we're just, we're just in the front yard tossing the ball, and I'm just, just enjoying them, laughing with them, uh, listening to them express their dreams of what will be one day in their major league careers. And, and we're just tossing around and having fun. And, and then my wife kind of gives the signal, all right, we got to get to the airport. And so we kind of load up the minivan, and we head to the airport and um, get there, and kind of dreading this part, but get out, and, and all the boys kind of file out, get all the luggage on the curb. And I pick up each one. And I whisper kind of this, uh, this secret message to each son. And then I hug my wife and I tell her that I love her. And I turn and for the first time, something different happened on this mission trip than everyone I've ever been on. For the first, every other time, there's kind of kids mindlessly waving, clueless about what's happening. This time, there were young boys becoming young men with tears running down their cheeks. Now, let me tell you something. I was sad. I, I was sad that they were sad and I was sad. But I was really deeply grateful that they feel about me what I feel about them. Those tears signified something. Years of intimacy in loving relationship. It's hard to depart. 16 years, those tears signify the way Paul has loved him. Did you hear Jamie say that last week? Discipleship at its core is not Bible information dump. At its core, it's loving someone continually pouring the truth of the gospel in them as you give them your life and love. That's what discipleship is. And he says, I remember your tears and I long to see you too, that I may be filled with joy. Paul says, don't worry. Don't worry, as much as you long to be with me and love me, I love you in the same way. 
And he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now I am sure of it, Timothy, dwells in you as well. I think what he's saying here, is, Timothy, when I found you, you know, maybe your mom, your grandma was really encouraging you, this opportunity to go with the Apostle Paul. Remember when my mom encouraged me to go play ball with athletes in action and, and, and probably had far more confidence in my spiritual maturity than anyone should have. Maybe that was the case, but Paul's saying, you know what? Your faith, which I saw in your mom and grandmom, is not merely their faith. It is yours. Timothy, you have a sincere faith. I'm sure of it. I've seen how the Lord has formed in you the image of Christ. I've seen it. Timothy, you're a man of God. I tell you, I long for the day to say that to my boys. I see it. It's not my faith anymore. It's not your mama's faith. It's yours. You're a man of God. Can you, can you imagine what this feels like for Timothy reading these words? Your faith sincerely dwells in you. And then look at verse 6. For this reason, Timothy, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying of my hands. I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. What is the gift of God? It might be easy to think that's his faith. Anytime we have faith, anytime God has spiritually illumined our minds to understand the truth of the gospel, that's a gift of God. Amen. Could be the Holy Spirit, which is the sign and seal of our faith, which is also the gift of God. Amen. Circumstantially, here's what I think. Contextually, here's what I think. He said, there's a gift you received at the laying on of my hands. I think what he's talking about specifically is also what is true of every believer. Not only the gift of faith that God has given you and the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is sign and seal of that faith, but there's something else God has put in every single one of us here who have trusted Christ. Did you know that? There's something else you have. And Timothy has it. And Timothy likely didn't know it, or likely didn't own it. And so there was a time in his first letter, Paul alluded to a time in 1 Tim 4, 14. He said, Timothy, don't forget that time the elders, the council of elders gathered around you, and don't be careless with this, but we prayed over you, we laid hands on you, and some of the elders prophesied over you, and don't be careless with the gifts that you were given. Now, what is meant by that, I don't think those elders chose the gifts for Timothy that he would have to carry out his ministry and his calling. I think what they did was they recognized what God had put in this man that he was unable or unwilling to see himself. So they prayed for him and they probably looked sickly young Timothy and, and they saw the stewardship that God was calling to. He would be the first pastor of the church in Ephesus where the idolatry to the goddess Artemis was rampant. And he would have to be the one that stands firm for the next 30 years. And so they're praying for him, and they're probably praying something like, God, we see the leader in him. He doesn't see it, but we do. God, we see the pastor in him. We see the teacher in him. We see how you have given him a calling. And God, we know you've gifted him for the calling. And we know these gifts. We proclaim them in his life. We see them. Let him steward them. And Paul says, don't be careless. Well, you heard God has put in you, listen to me, exactly the gifts you need to be faithful for the calling he's given you. Now, that's not merely true of Timothy. That's true of every one of us. You got to understand this. There's a certain way where we have the same calling as Timothy. What's that? We're called to live holy unto the Lord. We're called to present every man mature in Christ. We're called to make disciples of all nations. There's a sense in which, Jamie talked about this, God's will for us in a general sense is the same. But there's also a specific stewardship. You and I are not the pastor in Ephesus. 
you're not the pastor at Harvest. But I'm not in your neighborhood, at your job, in your family. You are called to be the ambassador of Christ right there. And listen to me, you need to know this. God has specifically, supernaturally given you gifts so that you can joyfully fulfill your calling. You do have a calling that is beyond the things of this world. And you do have supernaturally imparted to you gifts to fulfill that calling. Paul says to Timothy, I want to remind you, that's as gentle as you can say, I'm not commanding, I'm not rebuking, I want to remind you, Timothy, there's gifts in you. Because what God has called you to do, listen, listen, if you want to know what your specific and unique calling is, I don't know exactly for you what it is. Some ways that general calling played out in the specific context with maybe some unique facets of it. But let me tell you this, I promise it's more than you can handle. God never gives us a calling that is merely that which our natural selves can achieve or succeed or be faithful with. We can't. It's a supernatural calling requiring what only God can have, requiring his power and his presence. So what he calls you to do, you can't do it. But, but let me say this, he'll never call you to do anything he can't do. And so what you and I have to learn to do is lean on and be dependent on the supernatural gifting he's given us for the supernatural calling he's given us. Timothy, young, sickly, afraid, overwhelmed with fear. God's given him gifts. That here's what they'll do. They'll overwhelm his fear. In fact, I've got it on a slide for you. This is the first part of the reminder. Reminder one, God's given spiritual gifts to overcome our weakness and overwhelm our fears so that we can be faithful to his calling. Paul says, I want to remind you. Reminder one, yes, he's called you to far more than you could ever handle in and of your own flesh, but he's gifted you. He's given you a gift that will allow you to overcome your weakness and overwhelms your fears so that you can be faithful to your calling. Now, the second reminder is this. He said, fan into flame. That word fan uh, is, is a present infinitive meaning. Um, hold on, don't put that up yet. Uh, don't read that yet. Don't read that. Okay. The, <laughs> fan means continually feed. Now, if you know anything, if you've if you got a life to make a fire like I do, you know that that flame has got to have continual fuel or it's dying. So there's wood or whatever else my boys throw into it, and there's oxygen. And so we have to continually fuel the flame. Paul says, same thing, continually fan this flame of this gift. What's the gift? It's this ministerial calling and this giftedness to fulfill this calling. It's your spiritual desires. It's your spiritual purpose. It's that which is not of this world. He says, Timothy, fan the flame. Keep on feeding the flame of this spiritual purpose that you've been given. Don't just survive and thrive. Like there's something greater that you've been called to. Fan the flame. What would that look like to fan the flame? Okay, to fan this flame of this calling in us. Well, let me tell you, there's some things that it would look like for Timothy, and they'd be the same as me and you. For instance, meditating on God's word. Prayer. The fellowship with brethren, having some good brothers and, good, and sisters that you could really talk to and be transparent with, be in community with. The gathering for corporate worship. Now, how, you, how do you know? Well, the Holy Spirit's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and those things encourage the Spirit. They edify the Spirit within us. And then there's some things that will be unique to you, that will edify you, that may not edify me, and vice versa. 
for me to get up early in the morning and have a cup of coffee as I, as I read my book on prayer, The Valley of Vision, and read God's Word. Something about that smell of the coffee and that darkness and that Word. And, man, it's deeply edifying to me. Something about getting out into the country and just in space, especially cattle. Can't explain that, but don't judge me. <laughs> we can't go anywhere where I don't point out cattle. Uh, my kids used to think that was a big deal, and now they're like, wait, Dad, why do you always point out the cattle? I don't know. There's something in me when I see the cattle speckled on the path that I just go, God, the Lord's good. <laughs> so for me, I need to regularly drive until I find cattle. What is it that just, just stirs your affection flow, just produces in you deep gratitude, time with your children? For some, it's golf. That's more frustrating for me. But what is it for you? Listen, I don't know, but to fan the flame of the spiritual life and gifts God's given us, they're, they're, we gotta find those things. And on the flip side, let me say this, before we put this slide up, let me say this. There's also things that, um, that cause that flame to flicker. And there's certain things for all of us that would have been true of Timothy. Sin, idolatry, immorality, greed, pride, selfishness, self-righteousness. Oh man, the flame just, just, the air just gets sucked right out and it dies. But there's also things in our natural rhythm of life that you need to be careful of. I need to be careful of. I don't know why. I can't quite explain this to you. I guess I could think about it maybe. Uh, maybe give you some explanation. But for me, social media. Social media, I don't think it's a, a good or an evil it just is what it is. It's a platform. It could probably be used for both. I know this. There was a time a few years ago when I was on social media more regularly, uh, Twitter especially, um, following some of my friends, seeing what was going on, occasionally Facebook. I don't know why. I can't, I can't fully explain it, but somehow the regular use of social media for me produced in me um, uh, longings for things I didn't have and a life I didn't have and jealousy and, listen, judgmentalism. It's nothing worse than getting mad at people you love and you're not even talking to them. And, and it was just kind of like the enemy would use that and just throw this wet blanket onto the spiritual flame. I'd be really discouraged. And, and I, 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 it took me a while to go, you know what? This is a consistent pattern. You know what I ought to do? I ought to pull off of that. Because the, the flame's flickering. And Paul's saying, hey, let me remind you, fan into flame. I got to get off of social media and head to a pasture. For me, I don't, for me... Here's what you need to do. Practice whatever stirs and steepens your affections for Christ. And whatever deadens and dissipates your appetite for sin. Practice whatever stirs and steepens. I don't know exactly. Again, always be the fellowship of the gathering, the corporate worship. That's why, that's why I want us to just be able to free in here to belt out praises to God because it stirs our affections in the study of his word and prayer. But there's other things. Find those patterns. And whatever deadens and dissipates your appetite for sin, do those things. Let me gently remind you so that the spiritual flame in your heart doesn't slowly flicker and die. And you spend your life in a way that you'll one day regret in a worldly way when God has called you to something otherworldly in your life. Okay, and there's one more reminder, I think, that's a part of Paul's beginning here, and it's in the last verse. For God gave us, Timothy, and all of us, a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. And here's where I can say all of us. I don't think Paul just meant, hey, Timothy, you and I. 
I think the us here is indicative of anyone who has the Holy Spirit inside of them. Because if you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, there's a certain spirit that the Holy Spirit gives us. And the Holy Spirit acknowledges that we are people that are afraid. Big tough guys don't like to admit that. We're afraid. We're afraid of how we're going to make it. We're afraid of what other people are going to think of us. We're afraid to do anything of a spiritual nature because there may be persecution or labels attached. Like we're just people that generally live in fear far more than we'd ever acknowledge or admit. We're fearful. And, Timothy, and Paul says, hey, Tim, let me just remind you that even in the midst of your fears, which are of, of the natural self, there's a spirit in you that has given you a different spirit. And the spirit he brings to the table is one of power and love and self-control. The three things that we don't have in and of ourselves, do we? And so he's saying this, he's saying, Timothy, if you'll avail yourself to the spirit God's given you, the one he's placed in you, you'll stand courageously and boldly proclaim the gospel. You'll do it if it's by his power. Timothy, if you'll avail yourself to the spirit that God has given you, you will be able to love others unconditionally around you. You'll be able to faithfully shepherd and love those around you, shepherd God's flock. And Timothy, if you'll avail yourself to the Lord's spirit, you'll have a self-control that will allow you to live victoriously over sin and avoid the pitfalls of the enemy in your life. Can I tell you, Harvest, that's true of Timothy and it's true of you and I. So here's the reminder. Remember that the Holy Spirit brings power for what lies before you. His power that will accomplish his purposes. We just be dependent, be weak. And he'll give us love for those around us. We won't be self-absorbed. Our heart will break for what breaks his and self-control for the war that wages within us. That's quite a gift, isn't it? And Paul says, hey, Timothy, don't forget your gift and keep on feeding the flame. Now, that is my message to you. That is our application. But I do want to step back and just say this last thing. How awesome is it to have an older man in the faith. Can you imagine receiving this kind of a letter? You know what my first takeaway was? I was thankful that God's given me some spiritual pause. Men who have logged more days on God's green earth and look back to my life and say, hey, can I tell you something? I'm further down the road, I wanna tell you. Even in the midst of your unfaithfulness and your uh, inability to understand God's, uh, the circumstances he's sovereignly give you, God's faithful. Trust him. Fan into flame the things that stir your affections for him. Follow him, oh Lord. Let go of that other 8%. Like those men speak back into my life and give right perspective. I just want to step out of the specific message and say, how vital and awesome would it be to have a man like Paul in your life, fellas? To have a godly woman in your life, ladies, that would keep speaking this kind of truth into our lives. Can't imagine what it meant to Timothy to receive this letter. Can't imagine it. But I bet you these words, I bet you he read that thing so many times that he had it memorized. It was etched into his heart. And every day of the next 30 years, every day as he left home in that spirit of fear, he'd remember Paul's words. And he would faithfully steward his calling by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Until, as Jamie told you, 30 years later, he'd be martyred for the faith. How important, gang, is this right here in the body of Christ? 
Father, may we be people who relish and cherish the gospel that's been entrusted into us. And Father, may we be men and women who will, gosh, that, that we will grab hold of godly men and women around us and we will drink deeply from your faithfulness in their life and learn that we may just relish the chance to be poured into and that God, we may yearn, even in the midst of our recognized immaturity, we may yearn to pour ourselves out into others for the sake of the gospel that we don't have to make much of ourselves. We just make much of you. And Lord, let us be a body that relishes the chance to make disciples and see the gospel multiply in and through our midst for the sake of your kingdom. Thank you for this letter from Paul to Timothy. May your spirit inspire us to live accordingly. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.